What was it like for Sue Klebold to write a book about her son Dylan 16 years after Columbine? She'll join us to talk about A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. I had thought for years that I might publish, but I was so fearful of doing so. Um, there was certainly a lot of hatred and blame regarding um, you know, what my son did. What happens to our nation's poor citizens when they're kicked out of their homes? Matthew Desmond will be here to talk about his new book, Evicted. One thing that this book does and contributes to that is really tries to put housing in the center of the poverty debate to kind of show how central housing is in creating poverty. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Sue Klebold joins us now. She is the author of a new memoir, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Sue, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. What made you decide to write this book? There was really no decision to write the book. I am someone who likes to write. I have been a journaler since I've been a child. So writing was something that I was doing from the moment this happened. Mm -hmm. The decision to publish the book was the tough one. Um, I had thought for years that I might publish, but I was so fearful of doing so because I didn't want to be uh, exposed to the public. Um, there was certainly a lot of hatred and blame uh, regarding um, you know, what my son did. So it just took a lot of years for me to feel ready to do it. And one of the things that really made it seem like the right thing to do was the way people would tell me that knowing my story made them parent differently, and people would report to me that they were interacting with their children differently and digging for answers, and in some cases, uncovering things about their children that they didn't know so that they could get them help. For a long time, you didn't talk to reporters or journalists either, and then you spoke with Andrew Solomon. Uh, That was a kind of process uh, before you agreed to speak with him for his book, uh, Far From the Tree. How much did that play a role in then bringing you to writing your own book? Speaking with Andrew did play a role because um, it, I, I felt somewhat like a, you know, a prairie dog sticking my head up to see what would happen if I did make any kind of public statements or allow myself to be quoted. And I observed how his book was received, and I thought he had written beautifully, as always. I, I felt that I survived that to the extent that I might try something else. So, yes, those were a process of kind of desensitizing myself and readying myself to be able to do a book. I would think that, you know, you said uh, that seeing how that book was received played a role because that that book was so much about giving voice to things that family issues that people are often very uncomfortable talking about. And um, and it was so embraced among all the various communities that he wrote about, whether it was, you know, children born of rape or um, deaf children from hearing parents. There were all, you know, so many different um, groups. Was that, again, part of that, just sort of seeing the help that it seemed to offer readers? Yes. Um, there is something very um, cathartic and, and comforting and healing about being able to talk about things that you didn't feel able to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I felt that all, all the way along in the decision to write this book, um, you know, part of it was my own need to tell a story, you know, like uh, the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, where you have to just sort of tell the story just to process it. 
But there was another part of me that I felt that this story would be useful to other people, for anyone who chose to read it and, and learn about what I went through. It might be helpful to others as well. And those two things sustained me through all the times when I felt that, that I was afraid. Um, I, I tried to focus on you know, what the benefits would be. You mentioned that you kept journals since um, the Columbine killings. Did you then go back to those journals and sort of use those as raw material to write the book? Did you start writing sort of fresh from the beginning, or, or was it reworking that material? It was It was a little of both. Um, I had two or three starts in writing this book. Writing the book was something that occurred over many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, I did have a writer help me pull these things together. I had, uh, just in little paper books, journals, I had um, over three dozen journals filled. And then when I uh, sort of switched, I started putting things onto the computer. So I literally had hundreds of pages of writing. And in all that writing over all those years, uh, my voice changed, my perspective changed. In mm-hmm. the beginning, I was writing from the voice of a victim who felt that something had happened to me and that I was crushed under it and and I felt helpless. And as the years went by and I I began getting active with suicide prevention and some of the volunteer work, my voice changed. It got a little stronger. I began to feel like I was going to survive this and I was going to try to help other people survive this. And as more years went by, I became more of an advocate and more outspoken, more willing to take risks. So in my journals and in all of my writings, there was a, a different human being that was evolving all the way along. And, and it took uh, the skill of a professional writer to be able to help me put that into a book to show my own personal progression. When you think about the the story of this book and that progression, there are sort of three natural parts. There's the Dylan's childhood, your you know your own story um, as a mother raising him. There's of course the day of the the killings, and then there is the aftermath. Was there a part that was the most difficult for you to write? I don't think there was a part that was most difficult. Um, anytime I write about Dylan and write about losing him, even now when I talk about it, seventeen years later, I still cry. I still weep. But I don't avoid weeping. It's not something that I avoid because it makes me feel sad. It's something that I embrace. I embrace the opportunity to feel that grief because it helps me keep Dylan alive in in my heart. Did you find it hard to explain the complexity of emotions um, that you feel as a mother, someone who loves your son um, at the same time that you have the feelings that one would about what he did on that day, your feelings towards the victims. Was that, was sort of explaining that difficult or did that come easily? It came somewhat easily after I understood what those feelings really were. In the beginning, after the tragedy, I was so confused and bewildered and um, feeling so many feelings at the same time because you do feel humiliation Mm -hmm. and you feel shame and you feel sorrow and you feel fear. The real work came with identifying those feelings so that I could write about them and explain them. Did you find yourself in writing them that you were anticipating 
you know, what, what readers would think, what critics would say, like, well, if I write that, people are just going to say this, or if I, if I say something this way, people are going to blame me for X, or did you sort of try to get those voices out of your head while you were writing? I did not get those voices out of my head. I was very conscious of those voices at all times, because this is such a delicate topic. It's such a, you know, so many people were touched by this tragedy. People died. People lost their children and their friends and their siblings. Teachers were traumatized. I was very conscious of all the audiences that I could envision at all times. That was something that was just part of the writing process that just made it a little more challenging. You mentioned that you had a writer that you were working with. What was the process like finding the right person to take this on? Well, before I found uh, Laura Tucker, my writer, I had actually worked with a couple of different writers over the years, and we'd had, I guess I would just call them, you know, false starts. We would get started, and then for whatever reason, it didn't work. We didn't feel that we were getting where we needed to be, and so, it, you know, that took quite a few years until I actually did eventually um, find the agent that I eventually ended up working with, and then she introduced me to the writer. And what was it about working with Laura that, that made that one click? That's a great question. I never thought about that. Um, she was a very experienced writer, and I had, a, I think, a challenging task to try to pull all of this information, a very long span of time, um, information that I, I, that I would learn something in a moment and then two years later realize that what I learned was not what I thought it was, and so I really think I just needed somebody with a very um, a high level of expertise. Mm-hmm. She had that. And uh, also she was incredibly sensitive and caring, a uh, wonderful crafts person, and we just worked well together. There was, it was a real partnership all the way through. You mentioned how you had, you know, these voices, the voices of readers um, in your head. I imagine among them were the family members of the victims. Did you also think, you know, what would, what would Dylan have thought reading this book? I, I haven't consciously thought that um, because I was sort of carrying Dylan with me all the way through it. Uh, and I have never really thought about what would Dylan think of this book. Um, to, to me, he's been a partner in this book all the way along. The book's now been out for two weeks, um, and I'm assuming that you're getting a lot of feedback from readers, whether direct or indirect. And has anything surprised you in terms of people's reactions? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit surprised by um, the, the receptiveness of, of people. I, w- I was fearful. I didn't know what would happen. And I am a little surprised and certainly pleased that the book is being received well, that people are reading it. And I, and I also want to mention again that uh, this book is something that I am donating all of my share of the proceeds to mental health and um, suicide prevention organizations. So the fact that it is selling well pleases me very much because this is money that I can uh, pass along to organizations that are going to do the kind of work that needs to be done. The book actually debuts this week on the New York Times bestseller list at number two. So clearly um, it is hitting a chord with readers. Um, Sue, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you, Pamela. The book, again, is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy by Sue Klebold. It's reviewed this week in the book review by Susan Dominus. 
Alexandra Alter is here now with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? So once again, the literary world is taking over Hollywood. The Academy Awards are this Sunday, and there's a bunch of adaptations that are up for nominations. One of them is probably one of the most unlikely literary comeback stories I've ever heard of in several years of reporting on the publishing industry, and that is uh, the story of The Revenant. I don't know if you're familiar with the novel. The very uh, apt title then for this story as well as for the movie. Right. So the novel... um, when it came out in 2002, it sold, you know, something like 7,500 hardcover copies. It was not a huge hit. I don't think the New York Times reviewed it at the time. And it kind of went away. And then when the movie was in production, it was reprinted. It's gone on to be a big bestseller. It's on our paperback list. It sold more than half a million copies. And the author, uh, Michael Punk, is uh, suddenly famous, but he's in this kind of awkward position because he can't talk about it. He can't give any interviews. He can't sign any copies of his books. He can't go to press junkets. And that's because he is the deputy United States trade representative and the U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization. Um, He's this international policy wonk. He's a total star in the world of international trade. But in his contract, it says he can't do anything self-enriching on the side. And that would include talking about his historical novel, which is suddenly a bestseller. Okay, that's totally insane. I know. But does he get to make money off the book? He makes money off the book. And don't feel too sorry for him because he is going to the Academy Awards. But he couldn't go to the film's premiere in Hollywood with Leonardo DiCaprio and the director and all the stars because he was in Nairobi negotiating this $1.3 trillion trade deal about GPS systems and medical technology. He's on to bigger things. So his wife and kids got to go. Um, Anyway, it's been fun reporting this story about him. I was trying to write a profile. And of course, when you can't interview the author or the person, you end up going around them. But in his case, I'm, you know, speaking to people in Washington, senators, I'm talking to people at the World Trade Organization. And apparently, um, they are all absolutely tickled by his double life as a secret best-selling author. And the other thing that I think is interesting that I learned about him is that, you know, he grew up in the West and he's kind of obsessed with the frontier in Western history. And his brother told me he used to be a historical reenactor in high school. Um, When all of his friends were delivering pizzas for their summer jobs, he was at a state park dressed up in like this heavy wool. Yeah, but did he eat raw bison liver? (laughs) That's a good question. And I would have asked him that if he had been made available to me. And (laughs) you can imagine how frustrating this is too for his publisher. They have this huge hit on their hands all of a sudden and no author to sort of stick out there on NPR or or any of the TV shows. Who's Um, the sad publisher? The sad publisher, who's not terribly sad given the sales, is Picador. And they were smart to um, watch the movie development process and realize that the book had been out of print for several years. So they snapped up the reprint rights and have now been through more than 21 reprintings, I think. All right. Well, I guess we can't look for the next book from him for a while since he's not allowed to self-enrich. Well, that's a good question. If he could write something and publish it, I don't know if you can or you just can't promote it. Anyway, we'll see it. It's up for 12 awards this Sunday, so it'll probably get at least one and probably several. Maybe I'll have to quit that big-time U.S. trade representative (laughs) job. Probably. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Matthew Desmond joins us now. He is the author of Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, reviewed this week in the book review on our cover by Barbara Ehrenreich. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you are a sociologist at Harvard, and it's not your first book. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this subject. 
So I uh, wanted to write a book about poverty that was a little different. You know, we had a lot of books about poor neighborhoods, and we had a lot of books about certain groups of poor folks, you know, say like single moms or, or homeless folks. And I, um, I've i learned a, a ton from that literature, but I wanted to try to write a book that involved a lot of different people in a story about inequality today. I've always thought that poverty was a relationship that involved poor people, but non-poor people too. And I wanted to find something that would allow me to tell that kind of story. And I thought eviction was that something. Eviction is something that brings landlords and tenants and lawyers and judges together in this kind of mutual relationship of dependence and struggle. And that's how I came upon the subject of the book. And when you talk about those other books about poverty, which ones in particular were you thinking of? Did you have models in mind or or books that sort of stood out as having kind of staked out territory already that you wanted to either steer clear of or or model in some way, but do something different? Yeah, so many um, books have influenced my thinking on these issues. And I see myself as writing clearly in the sociological tradition that folks like William Julius Wilson and Christopher Jinks started with uh, writings about joblessness in the inner city and the housing crisis. And then uh, ethnographers, uh, you know, writing in the 60s and 70s uh, had a deep influence on me, too. People like Elliot LeBeau writing about uh, Washington, D.C. and others. And so I, I've always kind of taken a lot from, from sociology. And I think that one thing that this book does and contributes to that is really tries to put housing in the center of the poverty debate to kind of show how central housing is in creating poverty mm-hmm. and kind of reveal the fact that we can't address this problem without fixing a uh, housing crisis. Okay, so if people from outside this who haven't yet read the book might say, well, don't the really poor live in public housing? Why aren't these right. people in public housing? Right. I think that, you know, most Americans, when they think of where low-income families live, do still have an image of their head in a public housing or kind of assume that most poor families benefit from from the government some way, get some sort of housing assistance. But the opposite is actually true. The vast majority of poor Americans live unassisted in the private rental market. Only about one in four uh, families that qualify for housing assistance actually receive anything, which uh, would be kind of unthinkable with other uh, types of aid for basic necessities. You know, think if we turned away three in four people that apply for food stamps, for example, turn them away hungry. But that's exactly how we treat housing today. And in some of our big cities, the waiting list for public housing isn't counted in years. It's counted in decades. So in Washington, D.C., for example, you know, you could be a young mom and apply for public housing and you could you you might be a grandmother, you know, by the time your your application comes up for review. And so that's the kind of situation that most poor Americans are facing today. And um, in the private market, they're having a really tough time. So we've reached a point in America today where about half of poor renting families are spending at least 50% of their income on housing, and one in four are spending over 70%. Wow. So it's not a question of, oh, these people qualify for housing subsidies, but they're not getting their act together or they're not applying. It's that the housing isn't there. The lists are frozen. I remember going around with... um, a woman named Marlene, who is a single mom in the book that was raising two boys. And I remember one day on the, on a whim, she kind of went into the housing authority and asked to apply for a housing voucher. And was told, frankly, you know, the list is frozen. You can't apply. Hmm. And on it were, you know, almost 4,000 names of people that had applied years ago. And so for her to just kind of 
have a shot at uh, getting uh, getting her name on the list. She'd have to wait a number of years until the list unfroze, and another number of years until it came up, and then kind of just hope that the person reviewing her application would kind of overlook the eviction record that she'd collected while trying to make ends meet on the private market. Has it always been this way? It's a good question. I think that in recent years, we certainly have seen a divergence between uh, incomes for uh, low-income Americans have been flat or even falling in mm-hmm. some areas, but housing costs have really soared. And so in the 2000s, uh, costs for utilities and costs for housing um, increased all over America while incomes remained stagnant. And at that time where that gap you know, between housing costs and incomes was spreading, federal aid for housing just was not extended to fill that gap. And what about at the state or local level? Different cities are responding very differently to the housing crisis. And some cities are approaching it with building more public housing. And some cities are, um, are trying to kind of use vouchers in a very creative way. But I think the national picture is just we're not doing as much as we can and as much as we need to to confront the stark lack of housing in our cities. Given that local variation, how did you decide on Milwaukee as the, the city to do your research in? I think the story of urban America tends to be written at the margins. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of focus on our greatest successes, you know, New York or San Francisco. And there's a lot of focus on cities that some consider to be our greatest failures, you know, like Detroit or Camden. But I think Milwaukee gives us a shot to tell a very American story. You know, I wanted to pick a city that had a good chance of representing experiences of people in Chicago and Cleveland and Indianapolis and Gary, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I think Milwaukee tells that kind of story. Of course, in cities like Seattle and New York and San Francisco, those are cities where the affordable housing crisis is felt most acutely. But I think that they are the the outliers in this case. And I think Milwaukee gives us a more representative story. So you were looking for like a typical city where this takes place? In a way, yeah. And I think that when we've crunched the numbers about evictions, which we have in Kansas City and Cleveland and Chicago and even New York City, the numbers line up with the numbers in Milwaukee. So I think the book is definitely set in, you know, it's set in Brew City, but it tells an American story. And you knew you wanted to write about poverty and about housing. Did you know that it was going to be about eviction specifically, or is that something that you discovered while doing your research? The big discovery for me was just how common evictions were. You know, I kind of went in wanting to to use evictions as a way to think and, and write about housing, but I, I had no idea um, how frequent folks were displaced from their homes. And one of the um, ways I got at those numbers was just looking at hundreds of thousands of eviction records mm-hmm. in the city of Milwaukee and learned that if you look just in the inner city, about one in 14 renter-occupied households is evicted through the court system every year, which is an incredible amount of displacement and instability. And then we also conducted a survey of over 1,000 renters, and we asked them not only about these formal evictions that go through the court but these informal evictions, because a lot of the landlords that I was spending time with, mm-hmm. you know, were kind of forcing families out either through uh, kind of incentivizing them, actually paying them to leave, or doing things like taking your door off, you know. Um, and so we asked a lot of questions to get at these informal evictions, and we learned that about one in eight renters in the city of Milwaukee experience this kind of involuntary move every two years. It's an enormous number of folks facing uh, facing eviction. You're using the word we instead of I. Is that because you worked with graduate students who are helping you crunch these numbers and, and look into the data? You know, this has been a project that has involved a lot of different people, mm-hmm. including, uh, including graduate students and undergraduate students here at Harvard. And 
you decided not to report on this from the security of Cambridge, Massachusetts, but actually moved into a trailer park and then into a rooming house. Why did you decide to do that? I wanted to get as close to the problem as possible. You know, I wanted to try to um, experience and experience life in those neighborhoods and meet people going through eviction and spend as much time as I could with them. Mm-hmm. So I started by moving into a trailer park, uh, hanging out with the, the landlord and the building manager and, um, and seeing, you know, seeing the, the process of, of doing housing from their point of view and their side. And then I met tenants in the, in the trailer park getting evicted and kind of try to follow them everywhere. You know, went to housing court with them. If they uh, moved out of state, I moved with them, um, went to abandoned houses with them and shelters, but also, you know, went to funerals with them, counseling sessions, some births even, and try to just sink myself as deeply as I could into their everyday life. And I think living in the communities really helps if that's your approach. How long did you do that for? I stayed in the trailer park for about five months, mm-hmm. and then I moved into a rooming house in the inner city and I lived there for about nine, ten months. Is this um, kind of, you know, very on the ground um, ethnography, sociology? Is that is that sort of a new trend in the field? I mean, people obviously have talked a lot about Alice Goffman and her recent book. Or is that considered a kind of outlier um, in your field? There's always been a long tradition of ethnography in anthropology and sociology and, and investigative journalism, too, mm-hmm. for that matter of people embedding themselves in communities, um, l- living with those communities with extended periods of time and trying to write about life from shoulder height. Did you find that, you, you know, you mentioned that you sort of started off with the building managers and landlords and then were with the tenants. I mean, it's very tempting when you look at these stories to just think the, the landlords are the bad guys. But what did you learn about their point of view? Yeah, I think we let ourselves off the hook if we just kind of go for that. You know, if we if we go for demonizing landlords, we don't let ourselves think about how complicated and tricky this problem is. And so, you know, the book really does, it spends a lot of time with landlords and tries to understand their motivations and their work and their challenges. So some of the landlords that are profiled in the book uh, face things like people destroying their properties, uh, mm-hmm. dealing with problems that we know uh, come with poverty, things like domestic abuse and addiction. And uh, landlords are often uh, confronting those things directly. They take the losses and the gains directly. They they eat, see inside of people's lives in a very intimate way. And they have a lot of discretion. Mm-hmm. So landlords can work with families, let some mispayments slip, help uh, pay for funerals and medical expenses. They can also uh, go in the other direction and, and move forward with an eviction. Um, and some of those decisions aren't, aren't necessarily based on just financial arithmetic. But many of the landlords are nonetheless making quite a bit of money, especially relatively speaking, off of these very poor tenants. I think that's an important thing that I learned over this process. You know, when I started out this research, I wondered, why would, why would anyone own and manage property in some of the poorest neighborhoods uh, of a city. And um, I worked really hard to calculate profit margins. I pulled property records and looked into uh, mortgage records, and I analyzed landlords' books that they kept so I can pay attention to things like mispayments and vacancies. And, you know, after doing all that, I came to the conclusion that their profit margins weren't modest, and they were, they were big. You know, so the trailer park landlord, uh, the landlord of the trailer park that I lived in, you know, I uh, I calculated that he takes over over four hundred thousand dollars a year, 
after expenses for a trailer park that includes 130 trailers and is probably, you know, one of the most concentrated areas of white poverty in the city of Milwaukee. Um, I think we need to have a public conversation about that. And so, you know, when I ended the field work, I, I kind of had a very clear answer to the, that question. Race does play a big part in the book. And I want to just quote one quote, that passage that's gotten a lot of attention. If incarceration had come to define the lives of men from impoverished black neighborhoods, eviction was shaping the lives of women. Poor black men were locked up. Poor black women were locked out. Can you talk a little bit about how these problems perhaps disproportionately affect African-Americans? You know, mothers with children, um, they are the face of America's eviction epidemic. And this is especially true for low-income mothers in predominantly uh, African-American and Latino neighborhoods. And anyone who has spent time in housing court can see this for themselves. You know, you can see housing court just brimming over with moms with kids uh, and especially low-income women of color. And so in Milwaukee, about one in five African-American renters who are women uh, report being evicted sometime in their life. And the equivalent number is one in 15 for white uh, women renters. So it's very clear that, you know, African-American women, especially moms, Mm -hmm. are bearing uh, the brunt of, of this problem. But eviction also has become something that is affecting a lot of communities, you know, Uh, It affects old folks and young folks alike. It affects um, immigrant communities and white communities as well. And uh, the latest national data we have shows that about one in five of all renters, all renters in the country, are paying at least 50% of their income on housing. So this is a problem that's absolutely disproportionately affecting uh, low-income African-American women, but it's also spreading to other communities in the country. Well, people are already talking about this book as uh, changing the conversation around poverty and in income inequality in housing. So um, I'm sure people will be reading it. Uh, the title again is Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Matthew, thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hey, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Uh, just the usual criminal mayhem. All right. <laughs> On the fiction list, there are three new titles. Starting down at number 14, uh, Joe Nesbo, who, of course, is famous for the Harry Hole series, is back with a non-Harry Hole book uh, called Midnight Sun. Uh, you could read it as a standalone. It's really a follow-up to his Blood in Snow uh, earlier novel. It's so Scandinavian. <laughs> Joe Nesbo is is a Norwegian crime writer, of course. And um, this is about a Norwegian hitman on the run from uh, the crime boss who featured in, in Blood and Snow. He's now hiding out in a remote uh, northern Norwegian town trying to get in touch with himself and decide if he's uh, actually a killer after all. That's new at number 14, Midnight Sun. Then at number 12, a debut thriller by a woman, a British woman named Fiona Barton. She uh, was a reporter for a long time, spent a long time in the courts, and uh, developed this story over some years. The name of the novel is The Widow, and it's a story of a woman uh, whose husband was the chief suspect in the disappearance of a two-year-old girl. And uh, once he dies... 
Um, the police come to her thinking that they'll finally get some answers, and that's not at all what happens. Rare for a debut novel um, to do so well, but it's been a big success already in England. It's getting a lot of buzz here uh, in the, the Gone Girl vein. Uh, that's new at number 12. Another British import? Uh, another British import. Jeffrey Archer, not a crime novelist per se, um, I, although he did some time himself back in the day. Jeffrey Archer, of course, a um, famously failed British politician uh, who served both in the House of Lords and earlier as an MP. He's been a best-selling author since the 1970s. Uh, his first number one New York Times bestseller came all the way back in 1979 with uh, Cain and Abel. He's back at number one this week with a novel called Cometh the Hour. It is the sixth book in his Clifton Chronicles, a family epic that takes the protagonist, Harry Clifton, all the way from the 1920s forward. Uh, It's anticipated to be a seven-book series. So this is the uh, next to last, new at number one. All right. Let's turn to nonfiction. Nonfiction, there are four new titles this week, including still some criminal mayhem. Uh, But down at number 12, we start with a business book called The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, which uh, is just what it sounds like. He's um, kind of surveying the landscape, the technical landscape, the business landscape to decide what businesses, what industries will be big uh, in the future. And he's predicting that we're on the verge of huge technical innovation and invention. Um, Then at number 11... Another Clifton Chronicles, sort of. (laughs) Um, William Shatner writes about his 50-year friendship with his co-star and longtime friend Leonard Nimoy, the Spock to his Kirk, of course, from Star Trek. That's a book co-written with David Fisher called Leonard, new at number 11. Then at number 8, the book Conviction by Juan Martinez. Here's the criminal mayhem. Juan Martinez is the prosecutor in Arizona who prosecuted Jody Arias, the Arizona woman who um, was found guilty of murdering her ex-boyfriend uh, back in 2013. So this is the prosecutor's story. Conviction, new at number eight. More murder and mayhem up at number two. Uh, a really raw and um, kind of searching, touching book um, by a woman who was on our podcast uh, earlier in this episode, Sue Klebold. Um, Her book, A Mother's Reckoning, about her son, Dylan Klebold, uh, who was one of the Columbine shooters back in 1999. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.